This dynamic message is brought to you by Redemption in Jesus with Marco Rava. Praise God, praise God. All right, so this morning I would like to talk to you about removing the barrier to divine health and wholeness. Our title should have come up there. So, removing the barrier to divine health and wholeness. That's the title of our message today, and that is what I want to speak to you about. Now, I know that divine health and wholeness is something that for some people is touchy. It's, you know, we, because maybe they've been disappointed too many times, maybe they've tried it and it just hasn't worked. And this isn't in any way trying to give you another formula, another way, another means, or encourage you to just keep at it. If anything, I want to expose gospel truth to you just because maybe, just maybe, God will give you the answer why perhaps you haven't seen a breakthrough, why perhaps certain things have been a struggle. And I'm not making the assumption that everyone (laughs) deals with this issue, but, you know, from my own life, my own experience, being a pastor, being around people, and seeing the struggles that they face, specifically when it comes to their health, to their wholeness, and receiving divine healing when they need it, and maintaining it and keeping it and actually enjoying the breakthrough, I have come to discover, not only for myself, but those that I minister to, I have come to see how this one specific issue is way too often if not every single time, the barrier that gets in the way of them, in, of them enjoying, of us enjoying divine health and wholeness. And so I believe that God is going to give you an answer today. I believe that God is going to speak to your heart and perhaps show you, even beyond what I have to say, He's going to show and reveal to you how to remove this barrier and that this is the barrier that perhaps has got in the way of you enjoying divine health and wholeness. And when I say you, I'm speaking to myself too, because this is for me. Praise God. And so today we are going to look at the main reason why some struggle with enjoying divine health and wholeness. What is it that gets in the way? And so let's begin by looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 from the King James translation. This is talking about Jesus. And we're all familiar with this, but I want to show you some things here. It says, talking about Jesus, who his own self bear our sins, look at that, in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, once you say dead to sins, come on, say it, dead to sins. So we are dead to sins in Jesus, watch this, should live unto righteousness. Now watch what follows righteousness. Colon. Now I know that it's not in the original because the original doesn't have this kind of punctuation, but the translators made an educated decision here because what this is saying is is that as a result of everything we've just said, here's what follows that. By whose stripes ye were healed. So notice, pay close attention to that. It says that Jesus took our sin upon Himself. He carried it. He took it. Right? On the cross. And the reason why He did that is so that we can die to sin. It's interesting. 
Now I know you see their sins, but I submit to you today that not, that's not entirely the best translation because if you click on that word and you go look at the original, it's not actually sins. It's actually sin. It is talking about the state of sin, the condition of sin. And so Jesus bore the condition, our condition of sin, upon Himself. He bore it. He died with it on the cross so that we, so in other words, He was our substitutionary sacrifice. He died as us, but He also died for us. And He died to our sinful state. And that's why it says, so that we who are dead to the sinful state should live unto righteousness, and as a result of us understanding that we are dead to sin, by whose stripes we were healed. In other words, when we understand that we are dead to sin, that we are dead to the sinful state of fallen Adam, because we his descendants, when we understand that through the finished work of the cross, this is one of the things that Jesus did. When we understand that we are dead to sin, then it says, <laughs> we will see that we were healed by His stripes. In other words, we will see the manifestation. We will experience that truth. So it's interesting. And so <clears throat> what we see from that, because it says that we are dead to sin. So you, as a believer, is dead to sin. We are dead to sin. And because we are dead to sin, guess what? We have no obligation to it. Isn't that so? I mean, you think about someone on this earth who lives a long, good life, and eventually they die, they go home to be with the Lord, and we will see them again. And so once they die and leave, their spirit leaves this earth, you and I agree, they have no more obligation to this earth. They have no more obligation to the people that are left behind and are still alive. Whether we like it or not, they have no obligation to earth and to us anymore, right? And so that's what this is saying. This is saying, because Jesus bore your sinful state on the cross and He died for you and for that state, then as a result of that, you can live in right standing with God, righteousness. And when you understand that, then you'll know that by His stripes you were healed. In other words, you will enjoy divine health and wholeness. Because that's what this is also talking about. And so it's pretty powerful. So we need to make sure, or should I say, the key here is for us to understand that we are dead to sin. When we understand that we are dead to sin, we will certainly enjoy and experience divine health and wholeness that God gave us and provided for us in Jesus. Would you agree with what I've just said so far? That's the key. The key is for us to understand that we are dead to sin. So what does it look like? What does it look like to be dead to sin? Well, like I said earlier, one of the best ways to tell someone, show someone what that looks like is to say that they have no obligation to it. In other words, you are not tied to it. 
You have no obligation to it. There's no, you don't have to serve it. You don't have to obey it. You don't have to yield to it. You don't have to submit to it. You are dead to it. <laughs> you can, there's no obligation on your part to sin. And you know, I know someone is thinking, well, that's easier for you to say because we still struggle with some things. I understand that. And that's one of the things that I want to clarify today because that's one of the things that comes into play. The thinking that, well, we still struggle with it. We still sin. We still, and we, I know we're forgiven, but we still, it's still there. It still happens. Sin still exercises its power. Sin still influences us. And so because of that, people say, well, okay, I understand the concept of being dead to sin, but I don't, it's not really my experience. And therefore, they fall short in living in that truth. And therefore, have a barrier or they don't necessarily place that barrier themselves but that barrier is placed there which prevents them from enjoying divine health and wholeness i trust that that makes sense <laughs> so let's have a look and see what does dead to sin looks like what does it look like to be dead to the state of sin how is it that we have no obligation to it well, Paul the Apostle, who you know, helps us understand that and helps us uh, explains that in actual fact. So let's begin by looking at Romans chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. From the King James we're reading, okay? He says there, Moreover, the law, in other words, the old covenant way of relating to God. He says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense, now I know that offense is misspelled there, but that's because this is British English, that the offense might abound. Look at that real carefully. So God's law came into the picture. God gave His law to show us or to let sin, which is what the offense is, abound. And then He qualifies it in the next part. But where sin abounded, see that's the offense. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Now, I know we like that phrase, and most of us think, praise God for His grace. Because where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. So we almost see that as a competition. We almost see that as two people running a race. And you know, the one is slightly behind, which is sin. And you know, grace just gets ahead, just enough ahead, so that it can abound and it can win a little bit more than sin. But we see it as two rivals kind of just outdoing, you know, grace outdoing the other one. And that's not what this is saying. And I'm going to show you that in a moment, even though most people understand it that way. So let's continue. So, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Christ Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, so <clears throat> many teach and understand that portion to say, that holiness may abound. Let's put it back up on the screen. Watch what it says. That the offense might, might abound. So the law entered, the law came into the picture, God gave the law, that the offense might abound. Most people interpret that to be saying that the law entered so that holiness may abound. We can take that away. So, so that holiness may abound. Isn't that how most people teach it? Isn't that how traditionally most people understand it? They say, well, you know, the law of God is there to show us how we're supposed to live and meet God's perfect standard. And so the more you do it, then holiness will abound. 
then you will be more holy. That's how generally they teach it. But that's not what this is saying at all. This is saying that the law came in, God gave the law, for the purpose of letting sin abound so that we can see the value of grace and how much more abounding the grace of God is, which is our remedy, right? It's pretty powerful. And so what this is saying, another way we can put this, is is that God's perfect standard reveals our imperfection. That's why God gave it. And it reveals it clearly and increasingly. That's why it says where the offense abounds. Why? Because the more you see God's law, the more you begin to understand it, the more you realize just how perfect God's standard is and all these different requirements and rituals and things that we need to do where we every single time we fail to, you know, we fall short, we realize, <laughs> uh-oh, you know, I'm, I'm as, as an imperfect being, I'm incapable of satisfying a perfect standard. Amen. I mean, it's like us moving into a new town and as we begin to drive around and, you know, discover our way and begin, you know, go to work and find the route, the best route to go to work, we begin to discover all these additional speed signs and traffic lights and, you know, different pedestrian crossings. And so the more of these laws that come into the picture, the more we realize how we need to be extra careful and how ultimately it's so hard to fulfill every single requirement of those laws. And so that's a picture to show us here. And what it's saying is is that God gave His law to basically let our sin abound so that we can see how we fall short, so that we can turn to His grace, His unmerited favor, and realize that's the only way we can be saved. That's the only way we can relate to God. Amen? So that's what this is saying. And so notice it says, where imperfection is revealed, God's unmerited favor much more abounds. Praise God for that. Amen. And so in our English translation (laughs) or translations and most other languages, we see the same word used, but in the original, it's different. It's a different word used. Let's put that verse, that portion back up. Let me show you. I've actually got it emboldened there. Notice it says that the law entered that the offense might abound. Notice the word abound. And then it says, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Notice the same word in the English is used for abound, referring to sin, the offense, and also for referring to grace. The only difference is is that grace much more abounds. But I want to submit to you today that in the Greek, they are not the same words. They are different words. And again, this is something that puts the barrier for people because they don't understand the difference. And unfortunately, most modern translations don't exactly help us understand gospel truth. So let me show you real quick what those words are and what their difference is and why they make such a difference in us understanding gospel truth. Here's the first one. Remember we saw the phrase that the offense might abound. Remember that? Talking about sin? Well, from the Helps Word Studies lexicon, and you know that's a very credible resource, 
Here's the word abound, there's the number, and it's the Greek word pleonazo. It comes from a root word pleon. And what it means is greater in number. Or properly put, abounding in number or abounding in quantity. So what this is talking about is something that is measurable, something that is quantifiable. So it's talking about something with a with an ability to be numbered, to be quantified. And so it says where the offense abounds, in other words, sins can be counted, sins can be quantified, they can be measured. He says where that abounds, and then we see the next phrase, let's put that up on the screen. It says, grace did much more abound. Now that Greek word is not the same pleonazo. It is actually the Greek word hyperperizio. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. And this is a compound of two words. Hyper, where we get the word in English for hyper, and perizio. Hyper means beyond, and perizio means abundantly exceeding. So you know when people say, God's grace is hyper. Yes, it is. It's very scriptural. It's right there. I mean, God's grace is hyper. In actual fact, it says they properly translated should be beyond what already exceeds. Look at that real carefully. Beyond what already exceeds. That is ultra, super abounds. So God's grace is not just hyper, but it's also ultra. <laughs> so it's ultra grace. It's hyper grace. Right? So it says super abounds. So in other words, what you can say from that meaning or how you can understand it, is that what it's saying in the original is that grace abounds beyond number. It, is, it super exceeds the quantity of sin. Did you get that? So sin can be measured, it can be quantified. And he writes and he says, the law came in, so that the offense might abound and can be measured and quantified. But then he says, but grace comes in and is above and beyond what, what can be quantified, what can be numbered. It goes way over and above. It's hyper, it's ultra, and it exceeds any form of measurement. It cannot be measured. It cannot be quantified. It is powerful, wouldn't you agree? <laughs> so, I, you know, it's disappointing that the translators in most translations, you know, use the same word in that language, in our English language, for example. Whereas, you know, in truth, in the original, it's a totally different meaning. And praise God for that. And so, we see from that, that one has to do with that which is measurable, which is quantifiable, while the other does not. It cannot be measured. It cannot be quantified. Can sin be measured in a person's life? Sure. Can God's grace be measured and quantified? <laughs> no. That's why it is wave upon wave. It is hyper. It is ultra. And I think, quite honestly, the translators probably were shy because of this whole little stigma and misunderstanding, you know, of greasy grace and hyper grace. And you know, actually, they've been very scriptural because God's grace, as I've shown you, is hyper, it is ultra. And so praise God. And so praise God that where sin abounds in measure, God's grace comes in and abounds without measure over that sin. So it gives us the victory. Amen. 
So it's not a picture of, you know, where sin abounds, then grace comes and starts winning the race with a little more grace than sin, the sin's amount. No, grace over, totally overwhelms it and there's no competition. It, there's no contest, hands down. Amen. So it's pretty, pretty powerful. And so in other words, what he's saying in that portion is, is that when we realize just how sinful we are through God's law, God's grace is there without measure to keep us eternally righteous before God. Did you get that? That's exactly what he said in that portion. I'm putting it in my own words. When we realize how sinful we are through God's law, because God's law causes the offense sin to abound, then God's grace is there without measure to keep us eternally righteous before God. Amen. And when we understand that, colon, remember that? By His stripes you were healed. So it's the revelation of the understanding of the wonderful grace of God and how immeasurable it is in comparison to our measurable sin, we're able to accept and remove the barrier that maybe, just maybe, this is happening to me for this reason and that reason. No. <laughs> Hands down, grace is hyper, it's ultra, it's immeasurable, unquantifiable. Amen. Praise God. And so this is one of the reasons why some of those who were listening to the Apostle Paul, thought that he was preaching grace as a license to sin. <laughs> they thought he was using the same word. Even though they heard him say a different word, they just assumed, because of their legalistic mindset, they just assumed that he used the same word. In other words, when he said, where you know the law has entered, uh, and so that the offense might uh, what is the word, might, might pleonazo, they heard, and so grace will pleonazo much more. And so this is why they thought, well, this is a contest between sin and grace. And so what he is basically saying is, is that grace has a, a, little, a little head start, to, or a little, it's up ahead a little more than sin. And so really what he's doing is he's basically preaching licentiousness. He's basically saying that it's okay to sin because grace will always be just a little bit ahead of sin. And so that's what was going on there. That's why they thought he was preaching a license to sin. And this is why oftentimes people think that this is what we say. And we don't. That's not what we're saying at all. But it's interesting how Paul addresses that very issue because he knew what they were thinking. This wasn't the first time that he came across that kind of legalistic mindset. And so watch what he says in Romans 6 verse 1, which is a continuation of what we've just read in Romans 5. It's all just flowing from there. Watch us. What shall we say then, he says. Now he's quoting them. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He's basically saying what they were thinking. And notice he says that grace may abound. The Greek word he quotes them using is the word pleonazo, not the word hyperperisio. And so he's going along with their thinking. And so notice he quotes them saying, using the wrong word for grace. In other words, <laughs> he realized that they didn't get what Paul said. And that's why they thought he was preaching licentiousness. So then he goes on in verse 2 of Romans 6. 
and watch what he says. He says, God forbid. You know, in the original Greek, that is a strong double absolute negative. In other words, absolutely not. And some translations actually say, certainly not. He says, God forbid. Watch us now. Here it comes. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? In other words, what he is saying is, is that that is an impossibility that I'm preaching licentiousness because those who are saved are actually dead to the sinful state. And so how could they engage in it again when they are dead to it? And I'm going to clarify and explain all that in a moment. Okay. So in essence, what he is saying, absolutely not. I'm not saying that grace is a license to sin. What I am saying is, is that grace is unmeasurable. It is unquantifiable in comparison to your measurable, quantifiable sin. And because of that, you have the righteousness of God. You have victory in Jesus and by his stripes, you are healed. In other words, you can believe for divine health and wholeness. You can receive divine health and wholeness. Does that make sense? And so to just show you some evidence here from a credible Bible scholar, and I'm talking about John Calvin. Now, please don't think that I'm a Calvinist because I'm, I'm not. I don't take on those labels. But, you know, we don't throw the baby out with the dirty bathwater just because the bathwater is dirty. None of us agree completely on every bit of doctrine. And, but John Calvin had some wonderful revelation about the grace of God and specifically this passage here, which is why he writes the following about that, about this misunderstanding. He has his quote on the screen. John Calvin said, It would then be a most strange inversion of the work of God where sin together, were sin together strength on account of, gra of the grace which is offered to us in Christ. Watch his last statement. For medicine is not a feeder of the disease which destroys it. Think about that for a moment real carefully. John Calvin himself, in essence what he's saying is, anyone who thinks that Paul was preaching licentiousness, or grace is a license to sin. He says, they're not getting it. Because the fact is, is, is that why would God redeem us from something, heal us from something, only for it, the means that He used to heal us, to empower it to, be even, to get even worse? How can the medicine make the disease worse? How can medicine make it more destructive? He says, that's not the purpose of medicine. And so in his way, he's explaining, that's not what Paul was preaching here. Now, remember in that portion that we read, it said, how shall we that are dead to sin, which is what we're looking at here, live any longer therein? Now, stay with me. Remember, I said to you, we're going to get into the intricacies here. So you've got to stay focused. Remember, he said, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer in it? Now, remember, sin is a noun. So it's talking about as our state of sin. We are dead to the state or the condition of sin. But he's not talking about the power and influence of sin. Listen to that real carefully, because I'm introducing something different here that's going to give us the revelation at the end. Jesus, and in and through Jesus, we died to the state of sin. Correct? Yes. 
But did we also die to the power and influence of sin? The answer is no. Because if we did, sin still wouldn't have power today over our lives. And sin wouldn't try and influence us today through temptation and, you know, giving into temptation and that kind of thing. So, is sin, does sin still have power today? The answer is yes. Just look at all the evil around us. Does sin still influence people today? Yes, it does. Right? The sin aspect is still part of creation. Right? So, Jesus, in and through Jesus, we died to the state of sin that we inherited from fallen Adam. So we can be redeemed and be made righteous. But we didn't die to the power and the influence of sin. This is why sometimes we are still tempted. This is why sometimes even believers give in to temptation and sin. This is why some believers still make sinful mistakes at times. Because even though they have been redeemed from the state of sin, and they are now in a righteous state, they still face the power and influence of sin. Are you with me? That's true. I mean, the evidence is there in all of our lives, right? And in actual fact, to back this up, <laughs> what I just said, let me show you 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. Without saying it directly, it, 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 it's one of the many that actually um, say that. Watch this, 2 Corinthians 5 21. It says, For He hath made Him, so it's talking about God the Father and Jesus the Son. For God made Jesus the Son to be sin for us. Now notice, to be is in italic, so it's not in the original. So God made Him, Jesus, sin for us. The state of sin. Remember, He bore that state. He didn't become sinful. He took on upon Himself our sinful state, who knew no sin. So it's clarifying that. When Jesus hung on the cross and took on, bore our sin, as we read earlier, He didn't become sinful. I've heard some preachers say, well, He became an adulterer. He became, you know, this and that. To me, that's just blasphemy, because Jesus was without sin to the very end. But He took it upon Himself. He took the load of it. He took the weight of it to redeem us from it. It says, for God who made him to be sin for us, watch this, that we, watch this now, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So what this is showing us, and the reason why Paul is writing this here to the Corinthians, is to show them that they have died to the sinful state in and through Jesus. So they are dead to it, they have no obligation to it. But the reason why he's emphasizing that is so that they can understand that they have the righteousness of God. So when they are faced with the power and the influence of sin, they can reinforce and exercise and live in the victory over the sinful state that they have in Jesus. Otherwise, he wouldn't need to say any of that. Does that make sense? I'm going to clarify it a little bit more. Let me try and explain it another way. God imputed Jesus with our sinful state. Right? So he can impute his righteous state onto us or to us. Right? That's what we've seen. And so remember, I said that Jesus died with our sinful state, but he did not die with sin's power and influence because it's still there. Right? 
And you see, it's because people don't understand this truth about the gospel, they think, well, you know, if, if I died in Jesus to sin, then I also died to the power and influence of sin. So why am I struggling? Maybe I'm not really saved. Maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe I missed something, and this is why it's still a struggle for me. And so that barrier gets put in and prevents them from enjoying divine health and wholeness that God provides for us. Because they confuse the fact that they died to the state of sin, but Jesus, and in Jesus, they did not die to the power and influence of sin because it's still there. Right? Follow, follow my chain of thought here. In actual fact, he clarifies this in Romans 6 verse 14. Watch this. Why would he write this if they weren't still subject to be, you know, if, if they let it to have the power and influence of sin have, a, have, their, have its way in their lives? He says, for sin, talking about the uh, sin, the state, but also sin, its power and influence. For sin shall not have dominion. In other words, it still has dominion over some people and over those who led it. For sin shall not have dominion over you, talking about believers, for you are not under law, but under grace. So when you understand that you're under grace, and I've already explained all that and how wonderful grace is in comparison to measurable sin, he says, when you understand that, you are not going to let sin have its rulership, have its way with you. In other words, even though you are dead to the state, you are not going to let its power and its influence affect you either or neither whichever way you want to put it does that make sense so sin still has power and influence and jesus didn't die to that and neither did you the evidence is in the world right okay it's very quiet so i'm just going to carry on so by dying to the state of sin jesus died let me explain that so we let me try and clarify it a little bit more by dying to the state of sin, Jesus died to the imputation and penalty of sin. Do you agree with that? Yes, he did. What is the imputation? In other words, you can no longer be made sinful. You can no longer be in a sinful state. You can no longer be imputed with that. Jesus died to that, right? He also died to the penalty of sin as a result. Because if you die to the state of sin, it means that the penalty, the punishment of sin, you've also died to it because you died to the actual state. So if you're no longer in a sinful state, there's nothing to punish you for. Are you with me? So he did die to those things and that's why Jesus died to sin and that's why we have died to sin. So it can no longer be imputed to us and we no longer will face the penalty of sin because we are forgiven for all of our sin, past, present and future. Right? And because he died to that, we can have victory over sin's power and influence that is still there today. Are you catching a clue then following? You see, this is the barrier that needs to be removed. Let me put it in different words. We can no longer be charged with the consequence and punishment of sin, because we die to it in and through Jesus, right? You see, this is why some people thought Paul was preaching licentiousness, because, okay, so there's no consequence, there's no punishment, so we can just sin anyway. And he was saying, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. You see, let me put it another way. We can no longer be condemned 
because we died to the state of sin. To it, we cannot be imputed with it and we cannot be punished for it. Right? So therefore, we can no longer be condemned for it. We can no longer be condemned. Right? Okay. And so when we realize that we are 100% free from condemnation, then we will not allow the power and influence of sin to have its way in our lives. <laughs> this is powerful stuff. You may need to go to listen to it again or watch it again. But I'm telling you, these are powerful, powerful truths. When we realize that we are 100% free from condemnation, then we also will not allow sin to exercise its power and influence over our lives. Because we are 100% free of condemnation. And I submit to you today that that is the barrier that so often gets in the way of believers enjoying divine health and wholeness in their lives. It is deep-rooted condemnation. And that's why Jesus died to the thing that could cause condemnation. So we can be 100% free from condemnation. Because when we realize that we are free from condemnation, then when sin tries to exercise its power and its influence over us, we are going to say, mm -mm, sorry, <laughs> no room for you here. Amen. I mean, think about how sin exercises its power and influence over someone. Through guilt, shame, and condemnation. Isn't that so? Take guilt, shame, and condemnation away. Can sin, does sin have any power over someone's life? Can sin have any influence in that person's life? No, because guilt, shame, and condemnation specifically has been removed. And that's exactly what it means to die unto sin. To die to sin in Jesus. That's exactly what it means. So that the aspect of condemnation can be removed. Let's have a look again. Let me show you something else here. Romans 6 verse 2. Watch us now. It says, God forbid. He says, no, I'm not preaching greasy grace here. I'm not preaching licentiousness here. He says, how shall we, talking about believers now, that are dead to sin. Now you know what that looks like and what it means. Live any longer therein. He's not saying, guys, come on, you should know better. He's saying, guys, this is a fact. You are dead to sin. Therefore, you are 100% free from condemnation. So why would you go and empower sin again to have its way in your life? Why would you go and accept its influence when you are no longer there? You don't need to give in to it. You have a greater victory over it, is what he's saying. So we are dead to the state of sin. Therefore, we have no obligation to sin. Remember? Which means that we have no obligation to its power and influence. That's what he's pointing out there. You are dead to the state, so you have no obligation to its power and influence. So don't try and justify it and say, oh, you know, that was a little temptation. That was, it was just there. I couldn't resist it. No, you could have turned the other way. You could have walked out, right? We don't have to give into sin's power and influence, you see. And so often we hear teachings to say, well, we live in this fallen body, so we are subject to it, so therefore we can give into it. Some people do, and you have all kinds of doctrines, when in truth we have absolute victory over it. And we've also been empowered not to let it have its power and influence over us. Amen. I mean, think about the woman that was caught in adultery in John chapter 8. 
And for time's sake, I'm only going to read two verses, 10 and 11. Watch this whole principle that I've shared with you today, this whole truth. Watch it at work here right now. And so, remember, this woman supposedly was caught in adultery. They brought him, you know, <laughs> basically threw on the floor before Jesus, picked up stones, and they were ready to stone her to death according to the law. And Jesus said, okay. And, you know, he writes on the ground and so forth. And he says, let he who's without sin throw the first stone. And they all, one by one, left. Right? You remember all that. And then watch what it says here in John 8 verse 10. When Jesus had lifted up himself <clears throat> and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, watch this, this is so powerful, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? Watch what the focus of Jesus' conversation is with her. Condemnation. She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Notice the focus is condemnation. The barrier between her and the blessing of God was condemnation. The barrier between her enjoying divine health and wholeness, in putting it in, the, in our context, was condemnation. And Jesus removed that barrier, removed the barrier of condemnation, freed her from it. And he said, okay, now that you have received the gift of no condemnation, now you're empowered to go and sin no more. Why? Because she understood. But, and I'm putting it in the context of what I've shared with you today, because it's all a tap and shadow for us too. When she realized that she was now dead to the state of sin, and Jesus pointed out that she's now free from condemnation, 100% free. She, he also emphasized to her, you are now empowered not to let the power of sin have its way with you, nor not to let its influence have its way over you. In other words, because I've removed the barrier of condemnation, you can do this. Yeah. Powerful stuff, isn't it? And so what I'm saying to you today is, is that that is the barrier that is so often the enemy, life, our, con our mind, our conscience tries to put in the way is some form of condemnation. We feel guilty because we didn't do this. We feel guilty because we didn't say this. We feel condemned because, you know, over a period of time, we've just, we have a bad habit to deal with. We just habitually don't do this and don't do that. And so we continuously are measuring ourselves by the law and all the law is designed to do is make us feel guilt, shame, condemnation. And so that barrier is put in. And so when the time comes for us to trust God for divine health and wholeness, we have this barrier of condemnation that subconsciously or consciously won't let us get the breakthrough because we keep evaluating ourselves by the law of God, thinking, I haven't done this. I've been doing this. This is how I've been my whole life. This and that. It's because I've done this that this is happening to me. It's because of that. It's because of that. 101 reasons to keep that barrier there. And I want to tell you, God has removed that barrier in Jesus. Amen. You see, by understanding that she was free from condemnation, she was able to cut sin's power and influence in her life. And that's what Jesus pointed out to her. In essence, he removed the barrier of condemnation so she could enjoy 
divine health and wholeness in her life. Amen. You see, sin loses its power and influence in our lives when we realize that we have been freed from condemnation. And that opens the pathway for us to freely receive health and wholeness that God provides for us in Jesus. Amen. But what does legalism do? Legalism reverses the order, doesn't it? See, this is how legalism keeps the barrier there. Legalism reverses the order. Why? Because it tells you, go and sin no more, and then you'll be free of condemnation, and then you qualify for divine health and wholeness. Isn't that what legalism says? Oh, someone needs to hear that so clear. That's what legalism does. It reverses the order. Legalism tells you, you must sin no more. So you can be freed from condemnation and then you will qualify for divine health and wholeness. And is that what Jesus said? No. Jesus said you are free of condemnation by His grace. And because of that, you are now empowered not to let sin have its power and influence over you, which results in divine health and wholeness in your life. Amen. Some of us carry deep-rooted condemnation from childhood, maybe even from the womb. Some of us have people in our lives who keep reminding us how we fall short, and we're all guilty, but we keep that barrier of condemnation. But it is our responsibility to understand and live by this gospel truth and understand that we have died to sin. So we have no obligation to yield to its condemnation, and therefore we cut off the power and influence of sin in our lives and thus remove that barrier. Amen. Amen. Praise God. I mean, think about what Romans 8 verse 1 says. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Now I know the King James and many other translations have the second part. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And legalists love that because they make it conditional. But that is actually not in the original language, in the original uh, transcript. All it says is there is now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, period. It ends there. Why? Because no condemnation, the gift of no condemnation is not conditional. It is given to us by grace and grace superabounds. Grace is hyper. Grace is ultra. It cannot be quantified or numbered unlike our sin. And this is why there is no condemnation to you. I can see someone just getting a revelation and getting free and that barrier just literally removing from their lives. Amen. You see, condemnation is the barrier that prevents many from receiving and enjoying divine health and wholeness in Jesus. Many struggles people face in life are rooted in condemnation. And you know, <laughs> we cannot live right if we do not believe right. Isn't that true? We cannot live right if we do not believe right. This is why I'm sharing this with you today. Let's come to a landing here by looking at Romans 6 verse 10 and 11 and then we'll jump to 14. Watch this. All in the same context, remember? For in that he died, he died unto sin. See, there they translate it correctly. Sin, not sins, which is the state of sin. Once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Watch this now. Likewise, reckon you also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what are you to do? 
you are to likewise reckon yourself dead to sin. So the way Jesus died to sin is the way you died to sin. So the way Jesus is dead to sin now, you are dead to sin now. So you have no obligation to it. Therefore, you have been freed 100% from condemnation. Is somebody with me today? I mean, this is just blessing me. God's ministering to me out of my own mouth. Praise God. You see, in other words, what we see is that we are to reckon ourselves free from condemnation in Jesus. Without question, without doubt. Amen. That's why he keeps emphasizing that. Then sin will not be able to exercise its power or influence in our lives. Praise God for that. So the only way sin can exercise its power and influence in our lives is when we allow condemnation to rule and thus put that barrier back in there. Amen. And it has been removed. Watch what Romans 6.14 says as we end. For sin, that's the state of sin, shall not, notice maybe, perhaps, no, shall not have dominion over you. In other words, sin is not going to be able, the state of sin is not going to be able to rule in your life because you died to it. But also its power and influence is not going to be able to have its way with you because you are not under law, but under grace. In other words, you don't need to look at your quantifiable numberable sin, you need to look at the unquantifiable, immeasurable grace of God, which has set you free from condemnation. And that's how you have victory. And that's how sin doesn't win in your life. And thus the barriers removed and you can step into the divine and wholeness that God provided for us in Jesus. Amen. We trust that you are blessed by this message. For more information about our ministry or to make a donation to help us continue spreading the gospel, please visit our website at redemptioninjesus.com.